pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. If we're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water, leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on <laughs> it. I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Angreement. With me, Catherine. And me, Michelle. And Angreement is our podcast where every fortnight we bring you three things. A weird thing. And a pop culture thing. And then what has become our piece de resistance, our (laughs) sprawling research, which I have heard is going to be just as sprawling as ever. Oh, yes. This is a this is definitely going to be a sprawler. (laughs) But what I am most excited about for this week is that we actually got some grab bags. Yay. Thank you all for your grab bags. We appreciate it. I am going to start with the grab bag. This was emailed to us by an anonymous listener. They want to remain anonymous, which is very exciting. Which you can also do if you're feeling shy about your contributions. Yeah, this is what it'll sound like. So I am going to read this weird thing, and this will be the stand-in for my weird thing. And it does say, (laughs) oh, this listener, this listener is one of us, Michelle. It starts with a weird thing, but maybe a research thing. (laughs) Long time listener, we could tell. Long yes. Time <laughs> like, put it in research if it's going to go on for a while. <laughs> but it says weird thing first. So we're counting it as a weird thing. And now I will read. Well, here's my weird thing. Not only is there an art museum on the moon, what? What? That opened in 1969, but soon there will be a second art museum on the moon. How have I not heard about this? I know. I'm going to keep reading in a second, but I just have to stop to go, what? How have you not heard about this? This is your field. How do you not know about art on the moon? Not only is my field art, but I've had a weird thing about the moon, about blowing up the moon. Oh, yeah, yeah, blowing up the moon. I feel like a failure. Okay, let's learn. Let's learn together. I'm going to get educated, and I need it. Apparently, artists Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, David Navros, John Chamberlain, Klaus Oldenburg, and Forrest Meyer all smuggled their art onto the Apollo 12 lunar mission to create the first art museum on the moon. 
The museum. Oh, oh sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to make this long when it shouldn't be. I, but in my mind, I'm picturing each one of them individually, like dressed all in black, bringing their individual painting into the Apollo one at a time. Like, it's like a reverse art heist. They don't take anything. They, they, leave, they it. leave it there. Okay. The Sorry. Best art heist. I love that image of each of them. Here you go. Here you go. Um, I have to say, though, I'm kind of sad that Jasper Johns is not included in that list. Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns were good friends and lovers, which made Andy Warhol jealous, and he called them staple gun queens. What, what does that mean? It's because Andy Warhol did a lot of work with, like, silk screening, and he was an illustrator before he started all of his, like, pop art, and so he made silkscreen paintings, other sorts of paintings. He drew a lot. And then Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns come along and they make a lot of stuff with found art. And if you've seen Robert Rauschenberg, you've probably seen he one of his pieces is a taxidermied goat with a tire around it and then all this other stuff. And so they would use staple guns to just like staple everything to their canvases. And so... Andy staple Warhol. gun queens. Staple gun queens. Just, just pouring one out for Jasper Johns there. Not, not in the reverse space art heist. Okay. Good to start reading. Back to reading. The museum artwork was a series of illustrations that were etched into a ceramic chip by a Bell's Lab engineer who was a founding member of Experiments in Art and Technology known by the acronym EAT, EAT. EAT connects engineers with artists for projects involving new technologies. This particular project was the brainchild of artist Forrest Myers. It was dubbed the Moon Museum. Myers contributed an interlocking schematic drawing. Rauschenberg drew an inclined line. Navras submitted a black square with a series of horizontal and vertical lines. Chamberlain drew a circuitry diagram reminiscent of a tic-tac-toe board. A stylized sketch of a robotic Mickey Mouse was added by Oldenburg. And of course, Andy Warhol gave an iconic pop mashup of his signature that is, well, either a phallus or a spaceship. Here's an image of the Mune Museum. A copy is in the MoMA collection. And I have to say, Andy Warhol, it looks like a phallus. <laughs> as wonderful as these miniature artworks are, NASA never approved adding the Moon Museum to the Apollo missions. Instead, the effort was back-channeled by a NASA engineer known only as John F., who placed it within the folds of layers of insulation on one of the lunar lander's legs. The miniature artworks traveled from the six artists to the engineer, to the lunar lander, and then to the moon without any official NASA notice. This clandestine effort makes it difficult to verify that the museum is actually on the moon. However, there is a contemporaneous telegram from the shadowy John F. to the artist Forrest Myers that reported, you're on, A-OK, -okay. all systems are go, John F. Perhaps NASA officialdom loved the concept, but knew that trying to get it approved through the bureaucracy would have killed it. Or perhaps the engineers went rogue. It's well known that NASA engineers and astronauts could be rather prankish and naughty, especially on the Apollo 12 mission. An infamous example appeared on the mission's lunar spacesuits. 
Each astronaut had a step-by-step mission checklist secured to the cuff of their spacesuit glove. The checklist was printed on a series of small laminated pages that were assembled into a spiral-bound flip book. As the astronauts proceeded through their lunar excursion, they would look at their wrist and flip a page for the next step needed to complete the mission. However, on Apollo 12, a fellow astronaut secretly slipped two pages of Playboy Playmate images into each of the lunar explorer's checklists. Each image was captioned with a technical double entendre directing the astronaut's exploration, but it's best to leave the details to the listener's imagination. (laughs) (laughs) So each image was captioned with the double entendre. The Moon Museum can be seen as a similar, but more culturally refined, whimsical prank. Not all lunar art had to be smuggled on board. On the later Apollo 15 mission, NASA officially sanctioned sanctioned placing Paul von Hoynick's small fallen astronaut sculpture on the moon. But now there's an ambitious private venture to place another art museum on the moon. This new museum is spearheaded by Lowry Burgess, who is a Carnegie Mellon University School of Art Distinguished Professor and a bona fide space artist. He was the first person to send a NASA-approved artwork into space. It was a conceptual piece comprised of a small cube filled with water and elements from the Earth called Boundless Cubic Lunar Aperture. The new Lunar Art Museum is a collaboration between Carnegie Mellon's Robotic Institute and its School of Art because the robotics team believed that the early lunar missions did not have a cultural component, and the robotics team wanted some artistic representation on the mission. Little did they know there was already a museum up there. They call the collaboration the Moon Arts Arc, and it's being assembled as Carnegie Mellon's entry in the race for the Google Lunar X Prize. I was just reading about the Google Lunar X Prize. There you go. They're, I love that they're including art. The Moon Arts Arc has 14 chambers containing thousands of micro artworks, tiny metal murals, platinum etched discs with thousands of drawings, and microcapsules filled with samples of rocks, gemstones, and ocean water. Each of the four chambers act as a mini-museum representative of the chamber's separate theme, which are Earth, the situated context for humanity, metasphere, the communicative dimension of humanity through the metasphere, moon, our relationship with the moon throughout history as an artistic muse, and ether, abstract expressions and understanding the context of the greater universe. One chamber carries a disc containing 10,000 crowdsourced drawings from the internet. And yes, many of those plebeian drawings echo Warhol's phallic signature. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mankind. When will we not draw dicks on things? Never. (laughs) And Apollo 12's racy checklists. All new technology seems to go there, doesn't it? Yes, listener, yes, it does. I used to teach whenever I would teach my technology and art class. I'm like, there's two things people usually try any technology out with first. It's porn and pizza. And it's true. But my favorite Moon Arts Arc artwork is by Mark Baxinger, sheltered in the ether chamber and entitled Gravity. It depicts images of five brains showing areas in each brain that activate and interconnect when they contemplate the concept of gravity. The Moon Art Art Arcs has a website with exploded views of each chamber, along with descriptions of each major component in each chamber. 
Even the protective cages surrounding the chambers are sculptures themselves. And I will put the link the listener has included in the show notes. I'm very interested in hearing an educator's and a professional or historian's view of this project and its content, a future research thing, perhaps. There's even a pop culture component to lunar art. YouTuber The Beast sold space on a lunar-bound hard drive for people to place their photos or videos. One subscriber paid The Beast handsomely to include a video meme of James May saying, cheese, The Beast is also included. Uh, They also included a bunch of Bitcoin. So much for how humans create, consume, and send forth their culture. Discuss amongst yourselves. So I would say as a rhetorician, the thing I'm most interested in is like, who is the audience, right? Like who, who are you intending? I mean, this new project, obviously, like there's a website, we can go and look at it. So the audience, it like the, the sending it to the moon is kind of part of the medium, not necessarily like it becomes part like the sending becomes part of the artwork right but that initial one was snuck up there like who is the audience or the teeny tiny you know the question of who is the audience with a with a lot of artists I think of the surrealist I think of um Rauschenberg and those artists who are kind of like Black Mountain School of the Arts artists and they're amazing don't get me wrong Rauschenberg is one of my favorite artists of all times. I don't, I think it will, they, they're kind of one of, that's kind of pop art, like Warhol's pop art and Rauschenberg's pop art. That's where we get kind of the birth of conceptual art. With conceptual art, the audience is anyone who hears about the concept. And so as soon as you hear about it, if someone goes, hey, we did this, it's really more than, right, it's not about the visual art, it's about the concept, and then it's conceptual art. But then I also think with artists like that, it's just about, like, their legacy and making a mark, and they know they did it, right? They want to know they did it, even if no one's going to see it. I mean, so is it is it the same impulse that makes you, like, carve into the side of a like mountain, like I was here, you know, like the, I will uh, never understand that impulse. That makes me so mad, <laughs> but maybe right. Just to but, be the, it's the, isn't it the same impulse that even got us to the moon in the first place? You know, it makes, it makes me think about, um, I think this happens less, but there used to be this trend of whenever there was a thread up, people would just comment first, like just, just write yeah. the word first. Right. First. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> There would be like a hundred of them, right? There'd be like, everybody tried to do it at the same second. And so the the only one person was actually first, right? And then the rest of them were just (laughs) annoyingly raw. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing about audience though, and I don't know if this helps with the question, but one of my favorite Rauschenberg pieces is an artwork by him called Erased de Kooning. And he bought an artwork by de Kooning, very famous painter, very expensive artwork. And it was a sketch and he erased it. And um, now that's in the fucking MoMA, man, you can go see it, but there's nothing to see. It's just a de Kooning that Robert Rauschenberg erased. So what's like, there is an audience for that. 
I was excited to go see it, but why? But why? And it is, I mean, it, it is capturing like a material reality of some kind, right? Like that, that the idea of, oh, this was on the spaceship that flew to the moon, the idea of, oh, he physically took this and erased what was there. Like it, it's almost like a taking away all the other firsts. Yeah. You yeah. Can just go and encode them out. <laughs> So, right, right, the impulse to get there and do something, but also the impulse to undo what others do. And that you draw dicks. And to draw dicks. I mean, that, yeah, says a deep impulse. I, our, <laughs> we had a really close um, freshman, my dorm, my freshman dorm was really, really close. And I think we were talking about this recent, last episode when we were talking about the terrible windowless dormitory. We were talking about what was our first year yeah. living experience like. And my dorm was, they were super close. Um, but they, they decorated for Christmas in the like shared lobby to the windows. That, and somebody took the the Christmas lights and put them in the shape of a giant dick on the like shared lobby windows. And I just, it's just like, <laughs> that's one of my memories of like being <laughs> being on campus in the winter and walking back to my dorm and there's just this giant penis glowing. <laughs> if that doesn't say college. I don't well, apparently it just says human. Yeah. <laughs> it just... <laughs> Where there is a material Sometimes where there's no material, right? Don't people who do like virtual running apps, they'll run. <laughs> they'll run in this shit, yes. Just in space. We don't even, we don't even need there's physical. their body in space <laughs> like a dick. <laughs> that sounded wrong, but you know, you know. Um, wow. I also, whoa, whoa. I... That was thrilling. It was thrilling to learn something I didn't know about the yeah. art. I'm very excited to go look at these. I, I want to see the links from the show notes now. So it's super cool. And just I'm sorry, I'm just gonna keep saying I don't know how I didn't know that. Right. I'm so obsessed with um when like Carl Sagan made the the record to send to space, like what should be what should be the sounds of mankind. The things people decide to send to space, time capsules, I am obsessed with all of that. Like that concept of just leaving something for someone who knows who or anyone if, if, if defined. I just think it's really cute how we do that. Yeah. Like it's just, it, it, well, to tap back into a theme that continues to come up for us, it's a kind of hopefulness, right? Like it's a. Yes. Yes. That there will be someone. Someone will appreciate this dick I've drawn. Well, <laughs> I mean, you're still talking about that Christmas lights. I am. I, it it is. <laughs> they made their mark. On it had an impact. <laughs> That's an impact. It's an impact right there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anonymous. That yes, was that was fantastic. I am thrilled. Raising the bar. We need to. What Raise What do we it. got? Send us some more. Yeah. All right, my weird thing is going to be short because my research thing is not going to be short. <laughs> um, <laughs> my weird thing is that earlier this month, a man was on a hike in Hawaii and he smelled a particularly strong beer-like stench 
and was like, that's weird. And so he followed the smell and found that it was coming from a stream. And he was concerned and he reported that this He's like, this stream smells terrible like beer. And he reported it to a local environmentalist activist who went and tested the stream and found that it had a 1.2% alcohol level. So they went and were like, why is this happening? And there is a liquor distribution center nearby. So they went to talk to them and the liquor distribution center was like, oh, well, I guess it could be coming from us. So we'll cooperate with you proper authorities and put out a big statement about how they were cooperating. And I'm like, of course, like the ground is not just like liquor is not just coming up from the ground. Like, yes, it's coming from you. And so, but the activist is the one who like this, just like this person whose passion this is started doing all of this legwork literally rappelling down a guardrail to go and find a dysfunctional storm drain to figure out where the blockage was coming from to eventually figure out that, yes, the liquor distribution company was the source, but they have not yet made any statements since they've been found to be the source. So they have been told that they have to stop the dumping that was causing the problem. And I guess, I mean, the weird thing is like, if you were just on a hike and you just smelled beer coming from the ground, that would be weird in and of itself. Right. But I think the weird thing for me is just that, like, I don't know. I think we have this idea that there's something making the systems work and that really it's just this hiker that found this stream of liquor in the forest and then happened to figure out who would be the activist. That's like, no, I'm going to rappel down the side of this guardrail until I figure out where it's coming from. Like, just, you said there's an idea that like there's something making the systems work. My face just fell and I'm like, <laughs> nope, nope, that's not how the world works. And so it's going to be very pessimistic, but keeping on our hopefulness journey, on the other hand, it is pretty weird, but also pretty cool that they're, that those people can do it and can find it out and found it out and made a difference. But it's all, it's just so, oh my gosh, that's making me feel really weird, Michelle, that it's like so huge and so small that like, can one person make a difference? Can one person? It, it made me, I can't remember what I was reading that this was about now. I'll probably find it later. Um, but I remember reading that in every culture, there are people who are just like the rule followers. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what was happening here. Like, obviously this was a problem that deserved attention regardless of the rule or whatever. But just the idea of like, can one person make a difference made me think of this. And there was this research into how there are some people who just always follow the rules, right? Like that they are, they are the ones who are upholding the rules. They often really annoy us and we make fun of them. We're like, oh, that person. But like, there's been this research into like, to have a functioning society you have to have some of those people. Like you have to have the annoying, like, no, it says 10 feet from the curb to the street. And you didn't, this is nine and a half feet and we're not going to allow that. Right. Like, um, so like that, that, yeah, I think that not only can one person make a difference, but we need these people who are going to be kind of rigid in order to help the rest of us who are maybe not as rigid and are willing to bend those like, to keep us in line. Yeah. I could see just as easily someone smelling a beer river and going party. Hooray. Like or, drink beer river. I mean, I, 
like, honestly, if I happened to walk past the beer river, I'd be like, that's really weird. And I don't know that I would do anything beyond that. Right. Like I don't, I wouldn't know what activists to call to be like, Hey, will you go investigate the source of this beer river? Cause that's the other thing, right? It, it takes someone who follows the rules to make a difference, but then it takes someone else working really, really hard, like rappelling down, putting their safety at risk to make that difference. You have to work hard. You can, one person can make a difference, but you have to work really hard. <laughs> it's hard. And it's, you might have to rappel down a mountain into a drainage ditch. <laughs> if we don't fit rappel into the end of our, <laughs> into our fortune cookie, then I, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing with our lives. <laughs> okay. So our fortune cookie needs to have something to do with dicks and rappelling. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Take that as a visual, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Definitely anticipating you staying to the end now. <laughs> yeah. No, but I agree with you. There are a lot of times, I a, a long time ago on this podcast, I talked about how much I loved like the bystander training. There's so many times I'm a bystander in the world and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And then it does seem very tiring. And I go, well... I'll go home. Yeah. I'll go complain about this on Facebook. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I often just don't know how to make action happen. Like I'm like, oh, somebody should do something about that. And I'm here. So it should probably be me. But what? I don't know. I can't think of any specific examples. I had to bury a squirrel, but that doesn't feel the same. To bury a squirrel. squirrel in my backyard, and I don't know why. That would have been my weird thing, but it's oh. too morbid. So thank you, Anonymous, because the weirdest thing that really did happen to me this week was I watched my squirrel. You know this. We all know this. I watch my squirrels. It's what I do. <laughs> Every day I look out my window at my squirrels. I know what's happening in my backyard. And so all of a sudden one day there was a dead squirrel, and it wasn't there the day before. But when I go to this little squirrel... It, it looked like a desiccated husk, like it had been there for four years. It was dried out. It weighed nothing. How does that happen? It's so weird. So probably something dropped it there then, right? Like a bird? Or like a, like a cat or a dog or... Maybe a cat. I've been seeing a cat. Thank you. Not so weird. Michelle just explained nature to me. The circle okay. of life. <laughs> Back up the dead squirrel. Um, also, the other squirrels in the backyard did not care. They did not care. It was horrific to me. I'm like, I'm sorry. If there's a dead person lying in front of me, I'm not going to keep bouncing around. Hey, you have the good food. They're not going to. They're not going to give up this gravy train over one body. <laughs> I had whole Halloween pumpkins. They yeah. went crazy. I saw someone who just, there was like a social media post. It wasn't somebody I knew in real life, but they just like made the basic holes for like eyes and a mouth, like a really, really basic outline. And then I think they put like peanut butter or something in there to really attract the squirrels and they just let them gnaw it. And it became like this horrid looking mon. They're like, this is so much easier than carving it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> Oh,
quote, pop culture. Pop culture. And so I have my own pop culture. And in the tradition of pop culture slowly turning into let's share memes with each other and talk about Please, let's do. I love sharing memes. I know. I'm going to send you, Michelle, the meme I want to talk about, and then we'll try to explain it. Okay. Okay. I'm opening it. So this meme that I have sent Michelle is one that encapsulates a lot of things I think about a lot. And those things are... What am I looking at? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to describe what you're looking at? I'll describe it. Okay. Do you know who those people are? I do not know who these people are. Okay. We're going to have fun. Okay. So this is a meme that comes to us on Instagram from Aiden Arada. And it says, we have entered the manic pixie dream boy era. Call his ambitions cute. Steal his ideas. Fetishize his free spirit, but expect him to temper it for you. Our time has come. And then under that is an image of Pete Davidson and Machine Gun Kelly. Okay. Yes. I do know who those people are. But now that I have a little context. So I have to admit, I am fairly obsessed with Pete Davidson. And that is something he's very divisive. A lot of people don't understand why people like him. I like Pete Davidson. I'll say it here and now. And so I think a lot about Pete Davidson. He's been in the cultural zeitgeist for a long time. He dated Ariana Grande. That helped coin the term big dick energy. Hey, there's a pre-connection. And um And since he broke up with Ariana Grande, he's dated like a lot of famous Hollywood women like Kate Beckinsale and um, Margaret Qualley, the the lead actress in Bridgerton. I can't remember her name. And most recently has been spotted about town with Kim Kardashian, which is very exciting. I like that pairing. Now, Machine Gun Kelly is their best friends. They're very close friends. They, he appears in a lot of his music videos. Machine Gun Kelly appears in Pete Davidson's movies. A lot of crossover. And um, for those that also don't know, Machine Gun Kelly has been in the zeitgeist because he started dating Megan Fox. And I also think a lot about their crazy story about how they first met. And she told him, you smell like weed. And he said, I am weed. So, so there you go. Throwback to uh, prior when I talked about the shit posting groups, which are my favorite part of the internet, that became the, a like rolling meme through all of the shit posting groups. So I got to see the you smell like weed, I am weed through the lens of every single television show I've ever watched, right? So it was like, <laughs> here it is for Parks and Rec, here it is for The Good Place, here it is for Doctor Who. Like it's just everywhere. <laughs> oh, I love the internet. I do, I do. So yeah, so it's these two men who have a lot of tattoos. Um, people argue, are they attractive or not? That's very divisive, but they just seem to be funny, nice guys um, who are very open about their feelings. And it has the images of those two men and says, we have entered the manic pixie dream boy era. And this is a take on something I've seen a lot where it's like, these are the quintessential 
manic pixie dream boys and manic pixie dream boys are a thing and we need to embrace them and that's the time manic pixie dream girls are done they're a problem but we need to all embrace the era of the manic pixie dream boy so but are we embracing it we're not embracing it for is this like a a like subversion like our time to be on top has come kind of thing because I don't think we're embracing them for them, right? Like, am I making sense? Um, It's not about these individuals. It's about now grouping them into a whole. It's kind of like we're going to do to you. That is seen as problematic. We're going to do to you what you have done to us, right? Like, it's like a comeuppance. Right. And I don't think it's actually supposed to be empowering. It's supposed to be funny and draw even more attention to how man to the problem yeah girl is yeah. a problem yeah that's what i think i'm not saying hooray let's go let's go find a manic pixie dream boy cuz i cuz then it, yeah the funniness of that is that these men are also seen as perpetual boy children and it would be terrible and who wants to go around hearing i am weed right cuz machine gun gelly is in his 30s by the way like this is a grown person grown grown person so, and for those of you, if anyone doesn't know, this is very fitting, I think, because Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which I learned today was coined in 2007 by AV Club critic Nathan Rabin. He noticed some indie films had a tendency to create female characters with one-dimensional personalities to appeal to males of softer sensibility. The mid-2000s kind of soft boy, B-O-I, if you will. Yeah, isn't like Garden State, like the quintessential Manic Pixie Dream Girl? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Natalie Portman in Garden State is it. Taking off the headphones. This song will change your life. Let's shoot off fireworks. I'll solve your problems. Um, Yeah, he says the Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventure. They're an all-or-nothing proposition. Audiences either want to marry them instantly or they want to commit grievous bodily harm against them and their immediate families. So much like, I think, Pete Davidson especially, who's very divisive, people are either obsessed with him or do not get it. That makes sense. And I've also seen this kind of in the sense of good for Kim. When when he started dating Kim Kardashian, people then were really like, what? 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 And I think people are like, good for her. She needs her manic pixie dream boy phase. Let her run around and get her problem solved and music listened to by someone that she doesn't have to take seriously, in a sense. She's been through a lot. I mean, I'm not siding with Kim Kardashian. <laughs> but she knows, like, she's going through a divorce, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Right? Um, right? They're together a lot, man. I have my thoughts on that, but um, he's just like a, her fun time boy now and she needs it. So I have, I've said too much and I really don't have much to say about this. It's just been interesting me. And that meme made me laugh a lot. Cause if there is such a thing as a manic pixie dream boy, then, then they, they then it. they are the represent. Yeah. They're hmm. it. I'm going to, yeah, I'm quiet. Cause I'm thinking a lot. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this, but yes. Yeah. Again, I want to say, I'm not saying, Ooh, it's empowering. Let's go objectify men and make fun of them. It's It's like like the, have you, have you, what's the, there's a Facebook group 
that's like um basically it takes the memes that like are like women like the whole point of it is that it's like showing you what it would look like if we did this about a man and so uh like for like did you know that male doctors can also have children at home or what you know like the kinds of things like how does he do it and so like kind of just flipping the script yeah. to show even more of the problems yeah, yeah. that's what it's doing and so i like that and it's funny but also just they did hit the nail on the head with yeah. the poster voice of it. They really did. And well, and I, I mean, I guess I think that what's interesting about it is that the same subset of the internet who's probably like at least at least some overlapping subset of the internet that is enjoying this meme is also participating in the cultural conversation that is turning these men into these manic pixie dream boy. Like, I, I just wonder how aware we are of the oh yeah <laughs> that it oh my gosh oh <gasps> okay okay please keep that in mind for my research when we have to connect things okay that, like manic pixie dream boy didn't really exist in the real world we were only using it to subvert further the idea of a manic pixie dream girl but by doing it and playing into it and actually obsessing over pete davidson we are fantasizing about him in such a way and making him not a real person to where we are creating an actual manic pixie dream boy in the world by making fun of it. Yes. 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 That That is, that is, you just summed up the thing that I've been trying to say and not been able to articulate. That is what I've been trying to get at with this meme. Like, I'm not just saying like, but it's subverting it. Right. Like I, like I, I, it's creating, that's what that's creating it. Yes. Is creating. Yes. Oh my God. The only reason I can cop it so quick is the theory I'm using in my research, and I'm very excited. Okay, okay, let's go, let's go. Let's go to your <laughs> pop culture, which is not your pop culture. It's so not it's my like pop culture. Me. It is my daughter's pop culture who asked to submit a grab bag because she has been obsessed with this thing that she wants to tell you about. here with a pop culture thing so um it's about a game on the app store called 60 seconds this is a game that i really enjoy and i think you will too so it's where you have 60 seconds to grab supplies like food and water and um, weapons and then you jump down in a hole and try to survive the apocalypse you can grab um your children um, you can grab, you can grab like a med kit to heal you and um, an axe. One of the things that I really like about this game is that it has multiple endings. So, if you like beat one level, then you can just try and get a different ending. And there are different difficulty levels. So if you get all the endings, you can try it on a different difficulty level. I I just find it very fun, and uh. Yeah. Ale out. Bye. Yeah. I love her signature signature ale 
So the pop culture thing was the game 60 seconds, which in my house is being played on an iOS device. There's probably an Android version. Um, and we, uh, my daughter begged, she came to me and was like, mom, can I buy this app? And I normally don't like, cause you know, this is ridiculous games that are constantly trying to get you to do things. And I'm like, real, like really did some ad like brainwash you into thinking, she's like, no, I really, really need this game. And then I looked at it and it was set for ages 12 plus and she's 10. And I was like, I don't know, like but kind of, but she, she made a convincing argument that this was something that was a good critical thinking exercise. And it's really, a, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure style game. So like, it's called 60 seconds because you do literally get 60 seconds to gather supplies from your house before you have to jump down in the hole. But the bulk of the game is trying to survive after that. And it is all almost all entirely text-based. So there are some oh, images. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I really love like the resurgence of text-based games because, and they're coming back like text-based games. That's surprisingly hard to say text-based games are having a resurgence and it makes me happy to hear that someone Ayla's age is learning how to do this because my husband who teaches a lot of gaming classes, classes on gaming and technology, once, I would say only maybe four years ago, max, had his students play a text-based adventure game and they got so mad and could not understand it. And I think someone like got up and walked out of the room and they're like, this is impossible. And I think that's like text-based adventure games are a good brain activity. Yeah. Imagination. Well, and so, so far this fun. one does seem to literally be impossible because she's been playing it a lot and has never won. And now she has me playing it because I wanted to understand what she was talking about because she gets very excited about like when she manages to get something new to happen and I was like, I can't listen to this rambling nonsense anymore. Let me play it. So I understand <laughs> what you mean. And, um, it, it is, it's a fun game. Um, but it is very frustrating. Um, uh, but I, it reminds me a little bit, but it does like, it has images in the background. So like the images will change based on whatever it says happened, but it's not animated and you're not like, beyond the collecting of the stuff at the beginning, it is just making choices. Like it is not, there's no more like mechanical, like you don't have to have hand-eye coordination or anything past that. It's just Cute. from that point. Yeah. But the collecting is very, very difficult. I don't have hand-eye coordination. But it, it reminded me of um, back when I was like really little, like probably my daughter's age, actually, my dad had an old um, Commodore 64 computer and it had Zork on it. Do you? Yes, I know Zork. <laughs> yes. And, and he Zork. brought home the like, the like, basically like the cheat sheet, the user guides, but they were these gigantic, like 12 inch thick giant and like these blue folders that had the, the really big binder, like metal clip things on them. And I remember just like pouring over these maps and like all like, it. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just, it's fun to think that she's playing this kind of game. Cause she has like gone online and looked up like, but I know that somehow you can get to this ending. And when it gives you this clue, like, cause she's going and looking for like the tips that other people have put together. And it just has this whole like little culture around it. And I don't know. It's fun. 
It's cute. That's so cool. And I'm absolutely going to download that. That's right up my alley. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ayla. Yes. It's a fantastic grab bag. You've had two amazing grab bags to inspire you. Please send in your grab bags. Oh, mine's so, mine is so stupid, but I'm going to preface it with, again, this is legitimately what I am doing research on right now. If you want a peek into my research world, well, here we go. Now, this is for a book project I am doing with my husband. Overall, it's a project about YouTube influencers and how they're kind of, that that economy that they're building, how they impact the economy, but it's their own economy. We're calling it for now the influencer factory. And I'm very excited about it because all of the so many hours of my life I've spent watching YouTube videos is coming in handy. It's research. It's all been research leading up to that. So there is a YouTube star named Mr. Beast. So Mr. Beast is a YouTube star, and he's credited with being a pioneer of this kind of YouTube genre of extremely expensive stunts, just these displays of disgusting wealth, just really, really, really huge amounts of money doing stupid things with it. So, for example, he'll challenge someone to spend $1 million in a store in under five minutes. And if they can do it, they get to keep everything. And if they can't, they don't. Or he'll go into a store with a person. Usually it's like random people off the street that live in his area. And everything they touch, he'll buy for them. Again, as a timed thing. So he, how did he get all this money, you might ask? to do these things. He started making YouTube videos when he was 13 years old, and he first went viral for a video called Counting to 100,000, where he, you guessed it, just counted to 100,000. Oh, YouTube. So he made most of his money through video streaming, right? Through playing video games online for other people to watch. And that is where most of his money comes from that he can fund these ridiculously stupid, expensive YouTube videos for. So these stunts get fairly cruel at times. He makes someone run the length of a football field to win a Lambo, and essentially they have to race the Lambo. So he's like, okay, you're at the end of the football field, and my friend is going to get in the car, start the car, and then try to beat you. But if you can run down this length before they start the car and win and do it, you get the car. So these things where people are really working hard, really strenuous activity because they want the money, they want the car, they want whatever it is. Or he rewards whoever can stay like in a VR headset the longest. And that video I watched became really painful. People threw up, people got too dizzy, people passed out. Or like whoever is buried in sand the longest gets half a million dollars. So he'll do other things. He'll pretend like to be a Lyft or an Uber driver 
in a very, very expensive car, pull up, pick the person up, take them to their destination, and then be like, oh, just keep this car. Do you want this car? Just have it. And the reactions to that are very funny or amusing. I wouldn't say funny. Some people are like, eh. I would say 99% of people are like, no, are you crazy? And they like run away. Like it scares them that that concept. Cause that's a crazy person saying. Yeah. Here, I mean, I, I get, if somebody were trying to hand me their, I would, I would assume this is a stolen car. You've probably got a body in the back. I want nothing to do with this. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this huge problem in these videos where he is having insane displays of wealth that kind of, they don't do what he wants them to do, which is show how charitable he is. Instead, they kind of demonstrate the huge amount of debt a lot of Americans are in and how insane amounts of money become almost meaningless because of that. And they're very depressing. So your husband said my favorite thing when I was telling you about him saying, here, take this car. And he was like, anybody that can afford to just throw a Lambo at you can afford to do anything they want with you. And I'm getting out of there. (laughs) And that just stuck with me. I was like, yeah. That's smart. So he does other things. Like he buys out the entire stock of a car dealership and then just charges a dollar for all the cars. People come in to buy a car and then he says, well, that's a dollar. He also has Mr. Beast Burger, which is actually the how I, for the first time a few years ago, learned about ghost kitchens. And ghost kitchens are, they especially with COVID and the pandemic, they did help a lot of restaurants like make it through, but I think they're going to be a huge problem going forward. And ghost kitchens are just where um, they use the space of a kitchen for many different brands. So if you go on, um, and again, this necessitates things like Uber and um, Grubhub, things like that, Deliveroo, where if you go on a food ordering and it'll say, here's Beast Burger, or all these things, it's just, it's all the same burger out of this ghost kitchen marketed differently. So there are now many, many brands of food, but it's all at this one place, a ghost. It is literally, it's not like, it's not like three different restaurants sharing the space and making their individual meals. They're making the same thing. It's like when, um, you just, you just mentioned my husband, but he once worked at a place that I won't say the name of because of what I'm about to say about it. Uh, this was, <laughs> a, he, he once worked somewhere where he was literally, his job was to pull the sleeve of one brand off of this thing and put the sleeve of another brand onto the same thing. Uh, because they had, you know, bought the rights to do that to this product or whatever, and some sort yeah. of deal. So you weren't, you. And one of them was substantially more expensive than the other. Ooh, interest. Oh, I want to know. I'm going to ask you when we're not recording. But yeah, it's like that. It's like, here's a pizza place. Here's a burger place. And they just make the same things. And then Grubhub or whatever will advertise that as like four or five different restaurants, depending on what your phone tells them you want to be marketed to or as. And so Beast Burger is one of those. And it has a ton of franchises. And again, when he opened it, it was like he went to the restaurant and gave out money out the window and gave away cars. It's just a lot of that. It's a lot of here's wads of cash, here's cars, disgusting displays of wealth, dance for it kind of videos. 
They're hard to watch. Anyway, why is this research? I'm working through is called Late Capitalism by Ernest Mandel. And something we're writing about is how he, Mr. Beast, he lives in North Carolina in a very small town, rural North Carolina. And there are a lot of YouTube stars that live in small rural places. It's very, it's rare these days, except for LA sort of, but some of the top YouTube stars actually don't live in the coast. They live in the South. They live in the Midwest. Um, a lot of them live in Missouri and a lot of them live in North Carolina. So a big part of the book, Late Capitalism, it's a very long book, so it's not the only part, and I'll try to make this very quick, is that the imperialist stage of capitalism created many geographical inequalities. And we know this, right? And we usually refer to these as with very dated problematic terms, right? Like the third world or developing nations or the global South. And so the imperialist um, time of capitalism, that stage created those indifferences between countries. But one of the things Mandela is arguing is that those geographic inequalities can exist within nations as well, not just between different nations. So the geographic inequality can exist within one nation, the same nation. And the ultimate argument is that these imperialist geographic spaces aren't inherently capitalistic because imperialism produces spaces that follow a more feudal form of economy. And in the United States, that was the model of the South with slavery. It wasn't a capitalist economy because capitalist, capitalism needs workers to sell their labor on the free market, which did not happen with slavery. And so in that sense, workers, they're not in a capitalist economy. But what this does is that it produces geographic regions that are economically dependent on other regions in the US or in the same country. So after the imperialist phase of capitalism, after empire crumbles, after slavery is abolished, those underdeveloped, undeveloped, which is a problematic term, regions become a place to integrate into capitalism. How do we put them into capitalism now? And it, that happens in ways that bypass the traditional movement into capitalism through like factory-based production that happens a lot of the time. So in the American South and most other places, this involves technology to create these regions and investments of finance, insurance, real estate. And so that is what Mendel's kind of, and others are referring to as the new South. And it becomes integrated into capitalism through banks and tech companies. And especially this happens in Atlanta, Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham is known as like the research triangle and so this inequality still persists, persists today um, in distinctions between city and country. So Raleigh is now emerging in North Carolina as a really economically productive tech hub, but an hour outside of it, which is where Mr. Beast lives, as is the case in many places in the South, it's very economically impoverished. So the late capitalist mode of production privileges financial and tech centers in ways that echo the imperialist system. And all of that to say, we're working that into the book through Mr. Beast because he's one of the largest examples of this drama, of like the dramatizing of tech 
versus impoverishment. He is living that out in his videos again and again and again. But that's not what I want to bring up most about Mr. Beast. I learned last week, he announced early November that he is recreating Squid Games. Like, so as you were talking about what he was doing, I was like, oh, this feels like, I mean, a slightly less violent Squid Games because like, right? like see how long you can keep this VR headset on, see how long you can stay under the sand. Like, I'm like, that's just kind of gross that you are asking somebody to put their themselves. I mean, maybe not in like peril, but certainly in discomfort and discomfort. Yeah. And the more uncomfortable, a lot of those videos, people are like, I have to go to the bathroom or this is awful. And he'll just wave money in their face or he'll say, I've tripled what the the grand prize is to just keep waving that money in their face. I thought exactly the same thing. You're putting on Squid Games, Mr. Beast. You're already living Squid Games. It's what you're doing. But this is, it's so insane. He is recreating all of the sets of Squid Games so that people can play the games he says there will be 456 players like the television show playing for real money. It has cost him, and I'm not talking about the prize money, just to build it over almost $4 million. And like he's going crazy that it's costing him so much and he's shown pictures of it, but he's building out all of the sets and the games fully in real life. But like, the majority of the television show was green screened. Right. So he is it, building. He's building more than the most successful television show of the year spent on their actual. Yeah. He's building something that never really existed in the real world. He's copying something that was only ever CGI effects. Which brings me to the theory I wanted to keep you in mind. This is like Jean Baudrillard's revenge. And Baudrillard, um, I'll explain for anyone who doesn't know, he has his very famous piece of writing. It's called Simulacrum and Simulation. And he attempts in that to explain and theorize like the relationship between reality and symbols and society, and especially how culture and media are involved in constructing our reality. Well, not reality, but like our shared understanding of existence. And so they, the terms come to mean something that replaces reality with its representation. A simulation for him is an imitation of something that does exist in the real world, and it's simulated over time. But a simulacrum is a copy that exists in the real world of something that never existed in the first place. So it's, it's, a simulacrum is a copy with no original. And I'm like, that's, that's what this is. The Squid Games never existed in the world. And he is copying them. It's a perfect simulacrum. And so Jean Baudrillard says, we've replaced all meaning in our society. We've, we've just replaced all meaning so that our current reality only consists of symbols and signs. And so all of human experience today is a simulation. So we sometimes have that conversation. Are we living in a simulation? Mm -hmm. And Jean Baudrillard says, yeah, we are. But not in the like interesting, oh, are aliens playing a video game with us, but in just a, we've done this to our own brains. We have done this to ourselves. We have 
watch Mr. Beast build Squid Games. And now it's our fault. We are living in our own self-created simulation. Um, he says that simulacra like this, for example, don't show anything. They don't teach us anything. They just hide that nothing like reality is relevant to our current understanding of our lives, that we have decided collectively reality not important to us. It has no bearing for us. And um, yeah, I I think if you're going to argue with him or not, I think it's hard to argue against him when Mr. Beast, who unwittingly to himself is already doing a version of Squid Games, is actually building a copy of Squid Games that never existed in the real world. And it just is one of the wildest things I've ever heard. And I just can't, I just can't stop thinking about the fact that we opened this segment with the discussion of drawing dicks on everything and the, like the glowing, <laughs> the glowing Christmas lights in the shape, like that didn't exist in the real world. Like that wasn't a thing, right? This like eight foot tall and they don't glowing really ever Christmas look. light. No, <laughs> like, like dicks. So I would say those are simulations. Yes. Right? Yes. Exist yes. But, but it's an imitation. But we're living in a just a dick simulation. But like this is what I was saying. We could kind of use this with the um the manic pixie dream boy. boy. Yeah. Cause like we say, oh, this is a funny thing, ha ha ha. But then we make it our own lived reality yeah. by repeating that so much. Yeah, sorry, sorry for that. Um no, that was really good. That was I think that we for anybody who was ready to leave us for our immaturity in our first segment, I feel like we've made up for it by now, right? Like again, you get like a glimpse into my mind that like, yeah, I watch Mr. Beast videos all day, but let's talk about capitalism, let's talk about simulacrum about it. Very high low. That's what I like. High low. All right, buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the highlight of my fortnights are your facial expression before you start your research. I mean, it's just so much. Like, I'm so sorry, everybody. Oh, I love it. It's going to go on for so long. Okay, Um, (laughs) so I'm going to start my research thing. With, have you heard of Gay Hendrick's Zone of Genius? No. Okay. So I am just going to take you on this ride through how I got where we end up. So I am reading this book with the title, We Should All Be Millionaires by Rachel Rogers, because I am currently writing a series of blog posts about business advice books. Um, I am nearing the end. I have read so many business advice books that I should be a very, very successful entrepreneur, and I'm not, so I don't know what that says about business advice books. Um, Or you. (laughs) Or me. (laughs) That's not kind. I'm a, you know, I'm an okay entrepreneur. I'm just not. I have, I'm not a boss, babe. Like this book told me I should be. I haven't finished it yet. Maybe I will be. Maybe by the time you hear this, because I will have finished it by the time this is published, you'll be like, oh, what is she talking about? She's the most famous entrepreneur in the world. This is in agreement with me, Catherine, and you, boss, babe. Me, boss, babe. No. Um, So this book is, it, it is 
a worthwhile read, even though it is very, the veneer of it is, it gets on my nerves because it is very like, oh, you can be a boss babe. And like, it's very slangy and like, I'm, we're going to talk about this girl and you know, like, um, but, <laughs> but the hey actual, girl, hey. Hey girl, hey. <laughs> but the, the actual advice is meaningful in a way that a lot of like, uh, she's somebody who didn't come from an entrepreneurial background. And a lot of it is about like, look, this game is rigged. Like this game is rigged. And if you are not one of the people who learned the rules of the rigged game, then you're going to be fighting against them the whole time. And like, this is the mentalities you have to, so you have to break down. And this is the, the worldview that you have. You have to step out of it because the people you're competing against, they don't have this worldview. Like they're not, they're not hindered by this the way that you are. And so like it, it's, it's a worthwhile read. Um, so she mentions Gay Hendricks zone of genius, which is a theory about how to be successful that breaks down everybody's professional actions. You could probably extend this to other types of actions, but in this case, we're mostly talking about in professional settings and that level one is incompetence. In fact, she actually does connect this to like household duties and other types of actions that are not necessarily for, they might be labor, but they're not necessarily paid labor. So like zone one is incompetence. If you are doing this thing, you're doing something that you are actively not good at, that you don't have the skills for, that you are probably like, this is, I feel like I am in my zone of incompetence anytime I have to do some sort of physical repair to my house where I just break it worse so that now I have to pay to have them fix what I broke and what I needed fixed to begin with. And I'm like, well, that was fun. <laughs> now I've wasted money and time and my dignity. Great. <laughs> like, so um, zone of incompetence, right? Like you had no business doing this and you're bad at it. <laughs> Um, zone of competence is like, you can, you can get it done. It's, you're probably not, you're not great at it. You are not the best choice for it. This is not your skill set, but you can complete it to its level of acceptable completion. And then zone of excellence is where most of us end up working and zone of excellence is we're good at this. We, uh, you know, like, um, actually here, let me read, let me read the way it is defined by the actual person who wrote the theory. So the zone of excellence, in this zone, you are doing something you are tremendously skilled at, and this zone is typically cultivated. It's practiced and established over time. So it's an intentional thing, right? Like you are like, I am going to become, you know, a cobbler or a veterinarian or whatever it is, right? Like you have, you have intentional skill that you have built usually with training, probably with education and apprenticeship and time and effort. But the zone of excellence is where most of us kind of tend to hang out professionally because we usually get paid well for it. Um, we usually feel like we're doing a good job. Um, but in this book, she's talking about this specifically because she's saying, if you stay in the zone of excellence, you will never reach your full potential as like a self-employed person or, you know, like you will never be reach your full potential because there is a fourth zone called the zone of genius. And the zone of mm -hmm. genius is where you capitalize on your natural abilities that are innate rather than learned. So when you are able to align your innate talents with some sort of thing that gets you, you know, like your professional talents align with your innate talents. And it is specifically connected to the state of flow. I'm sure you've heard of the idea of flow, right? Yes, like, yes, yes. 
And so the idea here is that you are doing something that you're highly skilled at and that other people cannot do, right? Like that you, you are doing something that is beyond other people's abilities and it feels effortless for you because you are, it is, you are so aligned with the thing you are meant to be doing if you believe in like some kind of meant to be doing or that you're just naturally predisposed to doing that you you are able to do it almost endlessly because it doesn't wear you out because you are, you are so energized by it and so aligned with it. And you're creating something that very few other people can create. So you also have a lot of value. And so that is the area that like she's, and you know, it's a self-help book. So they're like, you know, you've got to get to this zone and it's like, can we? So I was about to say, can (laughs) everyone do it? Because like, what are the examples she gives of genius zone work? Let me let me see if I can find this section of the book. I'll I'll say some of her examples because she does give some. This is from We Should All Be Millionaires by Rachel Rogers, page one thirty seven. The zone of genius. In this zone, you are doing work for which you have a natural ability. These are your innate skills rather than learned skills. When you are doing this kind of work, you get into a flow state and do not struggle to create. You can produce distinguished and unique results that are unlike what anyone else is doing. When you are operating in your zone of genius, there is little to no competition for your work. An example of this is an engineer who loves to build things. She might spend hours in her garage tinkering with gadgets and gizmos, taking things apart and rebuilding them in a way that functions much better than before. She invents new products that solve the world's problems all the time. It is easy for her, and she truly enjoys honing her engineering skills, challenging herself with new projects, and redesigning incredible products every day. She can charge top dollar for the products she creates, and many companies want to work with her and benefit from her skill. So zone of genius work is what will produce millions for you. It's important to take the big leap from your zone of excellence or competence into your zone of genius in order to experience the kind of success you can't currently imagine. I do feel like she's underselling learned. You have to learn... A lot in that example. Spoiler. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. So I, that section of the book, like just stuck with me in a way that it was like, it was, it was under my skin. Like, you know, it's like when you have a a splinter and you're like, you know, maybe it doesn't quite hurt, but you're like, I just want to get this out. Like it's just really dig picking at me. Right. And I'm like, this is bugging me. What is bugging me? Oh, that's, I can already tell that's going to bug me. Well, don't worry. I've already done the bugging work, so we'll be fine. We're going to get through it together. Okay. So I'm going to debug it or I don't know. It'll probably be different bugs by the end, but it, it won't be that one anymore. So So I was like, what is, why do I keep thinking about this? Like, I don't even know if I agree with that, but like, there's tons of things that I read that I don't agree with that I don't need to keep thinking about. So like, why, what is, what is bugging me here? So, um, it reminded me of something I'd heard before about expertise. And I've been thinking a lot about expertise lately and how we can, how we conceptualize expertise and what does expertise mean and how we value it or more frequently these days devalue it. And so, um, I'm going to read to you the five stages of expertise that Dreyfus came up with in 1986, which predates this um, zone of genius thing. And they are novice, advanced beginner, competent, proficient, and expert. So there's one extra one in there. But 
I feel like those map on pretty well, right? Like it's, it's a series from, you know, I can't do this very well to I can kind of do this to eh, I'm, oh, I'm most people would say I'm fine at this to like, oh, I'm really, really good at this, right? Like yeah. basically they, they both kind of do that work. And um, something that I thought was really interesting here was that this research, uh, which I'll cite more fully here in a minute and I'll put the link in the show notes, said that in Dreyfus's five stage of expertise, each stage is marked by a progression from more external to more internal mechanisms or decision rules for guiding behavior, which also maps onto that idea of the zone of excellence because they keep they keep focusing on that innate, right? And less right. about some sort of external, uh, you, don't, you don't need to check against somebody else's approval to say like, am I doing it right? Because when you are operating at your full expertise or your full zone of genius, there's nobody who could approve it because you're doing something unique and that only you can do, right? Like there's, you, there's nobody else to look to, to be like, is this okay? Because you're the one who gets to decide if it's okay, right? So this idea of like the more that it is coming from an internal metric, of success that the, the more that is a marker of expertise. Right. But, um, I am now, there's a chapter called a brief history of expertise that was actually in a book about how do people in the, uh, psychology field become experts. But this particular chapter is, uh, by Thomas Scoholt, Matthew Hansen, Lynn Jennings, and Tabitha Greer. And the word expert comes from the Latin root word for experience, and it translates literally to as experienced in or having experience of. So we have necessarily equated being an expert with having a particular level of experience, which is not necessarily the same as this sort of innate talent, because experience definitely requires some sort of external validation and connection, right? Like you have to, the, the way that you get experience is by aligning yourself with these already established means for learning about that topic, right? Like yeah. that experience necessarily has some sort of external factors to it, right? Um, so in the original sense, an expert then is, quote, someone whose fluency of skill in a given domain is grounded in an accumulated set of experiences in that domain. Interestingly enough, the first time that the word expert appears in text is in 1374 in Chaucer. So Chaucer used it to describe those who had acquired mastery through an accumulation of relevant experiences. So Chaucer spoke of experts in love and science, and those were based in experiences. For that era, expertise could be developed in a number of different domains. Though areas of expertise varied, the process of becoming an expert remained the same. One simply had to accumulate enough related experience through which the necessary skills could be developed and perfected. And if you did that, then you got to be an expert. So check, you hit enough hours and you have the skills now because you did that work. But we didn't really start trying to investigate from like an academic lens what it means to be an expert or how we define experts until 1966. So that is when the, the research, wow. yeah, like, doesn't that seem really, really late? Yeah. Um, or at least the way that these, that, that they're talking about it, right? Like we want to kind of understand what is expertise in a field. And in 1966, a chess master named Adrian de Groot wanted to figure out what is the difference between a chess master and a chess novice. And the theory was that people who were really good at chess had some sort of cognitive process difference from novices, right? That they were, they looked at the game differently. They thought about it differently. And as they tested that theory, they found out that that was not true, that they, that 
they had the same sort of cognitive thinking about what to do next and what moves made the most sense. And that the difference between chess masters and novices was about memory and being able to keep actual like grids of the game in their mind and that those who were experts could chunk relevant information in the chess game into pieces that they could store in their memory and recall more rapidly. So they were able to pull these memories up and use them. Um, And so that led to research in the seventies that went across different domains, like music, football, uh, all, a lot of different domains to say that quote, expert performance in different domains requires basically the same thing, vast amounts of knowledge and a pattern based memory system acquired over many years of experience. So it is both the technical knowledge, but also the way that that knowledge is stored in patterns in your mind so that you can access it and bring it back up later. So it is, it's like a combination of like the actual experience, but also the way you store the memories from that experience and can recall them. And so in 1980s, the research went into how experts are those who are able to make meaningful patterns where novices see only disparate pieces of information. So the experts are the ones who are able to connect the dots and be able to create um, these these kind of ultimately what creates flow, right? That effortlessness of being able to bring things together instead of having to stop and be like, what, how is this piece connected to this piece? How does this connect to this? For those who are experts, it just all connects. It just, it just comes together and you can feel it. Right. So, um, in the late 1980s, Two researchers named Glaser and Chi developed seven characteristics of expertise. So this was from 1988. And their seven characteristics of expertise are, one, that you excel mainly in your own domain. So they found that this does not, they had this theory that it would it would cross over, like if you were really good at chess, then you would probably also be really good at picking up some other skill, but it doesn't typically work that way. You, you tend to gain expertise in your narrow domain. And those who are experts can perceive large, meaningful patterns within their domain. They are faster at performing skills. They have superior memory within their domain. They see problems at a deeper level, so they just have a a better understanding of where the problem is coming from. They spend a lot of time analyzing problems qualitatively so that they have a deeper understanding of them. And they are good at self-monitoring so that they can tell kind of where they're at in the process. Um, and this is, if you have ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, or heard about the famous 10,000-hour rule, this research, that came from research by Simon and Gilmartin in 1973, though they really said it takes 10,000 to 20,000 hours, which is Ooh. a pretty big difference. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a lot of 10,000 hours thing. What happened, Malcolm? <laughs> so, but... They really were interested in the idea that anyone could become an expert if they just had enough practice, but that I've always been frustrated by that. And I teach, I teach Malcolm Gladwell's outliers to high schoolers. And, um, one of the assignments that I give them when we're, when we do that is that they have to step into the role of a gymnastics instructor that has a potential like prodigy on their hands that like sees, I make her six years old and that she is showing this potential to be like a world-class gymnast. But because we've read all these books about, we've read the study about the 10,000 hours and we also read an article about child prodigies and we also read an article about pushing kids too hard. 
And they have to make a recommendation. Should these parents like pull their kid out of school, put her in homeschool, make her practice gymnastics, you know, 40 hours a week or whatever it is, like, should this be her full-time commitment? Or do you give up on this opportunity? Because if she doesn't start now, she's not going to get the expertise in time to be able to compete at the Olympics. So are you going to destroy your kid's dream? Or are you going to destroy your kid's childhood? What are you going to do? Um, <laughs> amazing assignment. Oh. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, um, and I, on it, like I have gotten really good letters and that, so they have to write a letter to the parents telling them what to do as the gymnastics instructor. And I've gotten really good letters making either recommendation, right? Like most of the time they try to avoid making a recommendation. And then I'm like, Nope, you gotta, you gotta make a recommendation. You gotta tell them what to do. Um, and so, but like, cause what I really want to focus on, what interests me the most about that. And that I think gets glossed over is that if you have made a choice to make your domain of expertise one particular thing, you have by definition chosen to not make your domain of expertise all the other things because you don't get infinite 20,000 hour chunks. Like you, you have, you have to sacrifice, right? And so you also, in order to put 10 to 20,000 hours of practice into something, have to have enough innate interest or ability to sustain that, right? right. Like, I, like there, yeah, I could probably put 20,000 hours of practice into something I hate and get good at it. But what kind of miserable life is that, right? Like, yeah, because yeah, like we like doing things we're good at. Like, it's not much fun to do things we suck at. That's why I really like that the other skill had, like, advanced beginner. That's Oh, you could just skip, like, you could just skip one, right? And it implied, like, you were already bringing some innateness, like, you're a beginner, but there's something advanced. I liked, I liked that step. I thought that was an important one the other one missed. So, all of this has been on my mind with the way that we currently treat experts. And so I'm just. <laughs> Which is something very important and very much on my mind as well. So obviously we have some eroding trust in expertise and this has been, I mean, I, it, all you need to do is open your social media accounts, but you also, this has also been marked in actual research that studies tr trust in experts. Um, it, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., there are widening gaps between college-educated and non-college-educated people and their trust in expertise, um, with non-college-educated people not trusting expertise much at all. Um, and and that this has definitely been a steep, steep, steep increase. I think they put the start of it at like 2014, and, and mm. that has just been continuing to increase ever since then, um, which I... Forgot to look up, but I want to know when the ICP song that has the <laughs> <laughs> fucking magnets, how do they work? And then it, and I don't want to talk to a scientist because they'd be lying and shit. Fucking magnets, how do they work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting, getting me pissed. pissed. I if, feel like you have, you have something on your hands there, Michelle. Because if it's 2014, they might have been bleeding edge. They knew. They're always, you know, you're down with the clown, you're down with the life. <laughs> I, I see if he was trying to warn us. All right. Um, <laughs> how's that for high-low? Uh, anyway. So <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> so, um, 
There's a theory that experts and non-experts often start with different unspoken assumptions, which leads them to different conclusions. And this led me to, I'm so sorry, everybody. I'm not even. This is great. Don't apologize. They, they They can pause. They can come back. They can stop. I'm here for it. This led me to the research of Philip Tetlock, who is a University of Pennsylvania professor that looks at how people make predictions about the world. And he has a theory that divides the world into hedgehogs and foxes. So you are either a hedgehog or a fox. Hedgehogs tend to see the world through one lens, while foxes tend to see the world through, quote, a range of prisms, including prisms that may contradict one another. So Foxes have a lot more complicated decision-making processes, whereas hedgehogs are like, no, I know my thing and I'm just going to do my thing. Like, I don't, there's nothing to question here. It comes from the Greek poet that I'm probably also going to mispronounce. I think it's Archilochus and the parable of the fox and the hedgehog. And so they, Tetlock took this parable and turned it into this theory of how to talk about people. So hedgehogs tend to be seen as better leadership material because they are focused and tend to do a single big thing and can get people behind them because they just kind of full speed ahead, everybody get in line, this is what we're doing, right? The flip side of that kind of focus and drive is an almost tyrannical or sometimes a literally tyrannical way of interacting with the world, right? Um, and then that led me to a Hidden Brain episode, so the, pod, the NPR podcast Hidden Brain, that was titled The Fox and the Hedgehog that told the story of Dr. Don Lobb, a Stanford plastic surgeon who became known for groundbreaking work in gender confirming surgery in the 1960s. Um, and it's interesting because you brought up the thing about like Midwesterners, because there's a whole section in this that I didn't include in my original summary, but that I'm going to bring up now because you brought it up about Lob. Lob was a Midwesterner. And he was like, he kept saying that like in a way that as if that had some really important tellingness about his identity. He's like, no, I'm just, I'm just a good Midwestern boy. I'm not going to do these kinds of surgeries. This is, this is very, uh, like Midwestern seem to be euphemistic for like, I don't know, some sort of conservative ideology of not being willing to rock the boat or something. Um, I'm fascinated in how Midwestern gets, how that's a feeling or a stand in for other things. I just watched the show, the hype, great show and one of the two of the contestants were from the midwest and they kept saying well we're midwesterners well we're midwesterners and i think in that case it stood in for like hard work do everything on their own but yeah like i and there's all these like facebook groups for like the world versus Midwesterners or things. And I don't, and it's like, sometimes they're funny and they're obviously regionalisms, but I don't know that I feel, I mean, I'm very clearly a Midwesterner. Like I've lived in Missouri my whole life and it's just, it's weird. The identity around Midwestern is weird. Missouri is the South. It is not very mad. Thank you. It's Midwest. It's solidly Midwest. Solidly Midwest. I know there was like the Missouri compromise and everything, but it is solidly Midwest. There are parts of Southern Missouri that probably identify more culturally with the South, but like if you live, you know, North of if the 70, you are definitely like that. I mean, I mean, I guess that's it. We can just do where did the Missouri compromise split it? And then yeah. You know. Yeah. 
But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm Midwestern. And I don't mean that as a stand-in for anything. No, like I just literally am from the Midwest on the map. But yes. All right. So, so Dr. Love, this is the 1960s. Gender confirming surgery was definitely not the norm. Um, And he, so the podcast actually includes Sandy Stone, who was one of Dr. Lobb's patients, and she went on to become foundational in academic transgender studies. And, um, but one of his first patients, he was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. You know, like, that's way too controversial for me. That's not what I came here for. That's, I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a Midwestern boy who came to Stanford. Like, that's not what I'm here for. And um, the guy who was trying to convince him was like, just go talk, let's go talk to this patient. And as soon as he got in there and was talking to her, then he was like, I just want to help her make her life better. Like she obviously, she needs this surgery to not be miserable. And I, that's important to me. So he was willing to do it because his big thing, his drive in life, his hedgehog brain, as this, this is the way the podcast puts it, is that he wants to help people not feel isolated by making them fit in with the world. Like that is just his, that's his view. That's his lens that's his hammer for everything is a nail, right? Like, um, and so the, the work, his work in gender confirming surgery is held up as like this great example of like how the hedgehog brain can bring us great innovation and move us forward. But it also tells us the story of how he was in Mexico with a team of doctors who were performing surgeries for particularly facial deformities on children, like cleft palates and other things that were making them ostracized and being made fun of. And this was again in the sixties. And this, it tells the, the podcast tells the story of one six-year-old boy who had a deformity in his mouth that was causing other children to mock him. And he was being really um, made fun of and being turned away and like just, was having a really, really, really hard time. And his mother brought him and begged and said, like, his, he has no life. Please, you have to do this surgery. But during the um, intake, they found that he had a heart defect. And they were like, we can't. The surgery is too risky. And it's not, you know, like, it's not a life-saving su- surgery if we if we weigh the risks and benefits. Like, he's just not, he's not a candidate for the surgery. So they sent her away. She came back months later and begged and like, she's like, his life is miserable. He has no life. Please, please, please. Will you, will you do the surgery? And they turned him away again. And then the third time that she came back, he, he did the surgery and the child died. The child died during the surgery. And so he has immense regrets about it and like, feels like his, his focus on helping this kid fit in made him ignore a responsibility that he had Uh, to follow protocol and to follow the best practices. Um, And it concludes with this statement. When we think of foxes and hedgehogs, it's completely understandable that we want the best of both worlds. We love bold visionaries who take big risks, except when the risks don't work. At moments like that, we prefer the visionaries to be more cautious, filled with a little self-doubt. Now, people don't always fall neatly into one camp or the other. Some of us can be both fox and hedgehog. We can think and dream big, but also change course, adapt to circumstances. But it may be that we can't have our cake and eat it too. If we want the visionary Steve Jobs who helped usher in the age of the iPhone, we might also get the tyrannical CEO who nearly ran Apple computers into the ground in the 1980s. And so I don't know that I I can't, I don't know how to neatly tie all this up into a bow, but I do think that there's something important about the way that we consider expertise and what, where we define that, because I think that we are operating with different definitions of it at different times and that we're not examining the contradictions of those definitions very well. So that sometimes when we say expertise, we mean something like, you know, 
prodigal, really rare, innate talent that is a like once in a lifetime kind of thing, right? And and sometimes we mean, oh, this person studied that a long time. And sometimes we mean some kind of combo of that, you know, like. But that's so interesting, the way you just phrased that, that it's like this prodigal knowledge came down, was 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 gifted knowledge and talent was gifted to them from somewhere else versus I worked really, really hard. This is boring. Because, man, so many right now, I think you have medical doctors who have scientists who are who who put in the hours and i think so many of the people leading the charge against expertise well not against it and you're helping me see it's not against expertise it's different definitions of expertise are often people that right it's like qAnon shit that are like i have this information i have it i have it no one else does yeah, that expertise becomes like a, a gatekeeping thing versus yeah. a like versus a earned credential. But then I wasn't going to bring this part up. I'm sorry. Bring it. Do so, it. <laughs> but then uh, to add to that, to add to that problem is the over credentialing of things, right? The fact that we like yes. that that we've turned credentialing into such a market that. There is this layer. So for instance, um, where I got my PhD just very recently announced that they are making changes to the PhD program again, which I haven't had my PhD that long and they've made it, they made changes a few times since I finished. And um, it's to, it's to make the program where people can get through it faster to better align with the university's goals of getting people out. And um, so now you are supposed to be ready to take your doctoral exams in the winter of your third year. And at the same time, you're supposed to turn in a, um, I don't think they're calling it a prospectus anymore. I think they're calling it like a dissertation outline or like a dissertation abstract or something. But it sounds like a prospectus. At the same time that you're taking exams and like, you can't. The I'm trying to in there mm-hmm. to make sure Just, you have enough information yep, to yep. then go do the work. Oh right. my gosh. Right, 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 right. And so like, I'm trying not to be like the get off my lawn kids, but like, I just, I'm just not convinced that you can get a deep enough understanding of the subject matter to be earning what you should be earning for a doctoral degree. Like we have master's degrees. Like we, like the, the goal is just to get somebody through so you can say that they have this degree, but they're not actually doing the level of work that is deep enough to be called that. Like what? So then do we just add another degree for that one? Like, I feel like we're just kind of yeah, be. Because then they'll get more money. And that's what it's about. Not to be like capitalist pessimist, but like, right. They just want that. And then I know that that hurts because, like, I don't know what my stance is on this whole thing I just rambled about. Like, I don't know what I think expertise should be, but I do know that I think that expertise is valuable. Like, that yeah. I I put a lot of trust in people who have spent their life studying a thing, right? Like, and you trust that the credentials and bars they have passed are valid and serious and not being and are being driven by safety and knowledge, et cetera, and not just 
butts and seats, money, money. Right. And I mean, I like, and obvi- like the most, the most contentious, obvious way right now is like, I trust the epidemiologists who say getting this vaccine is the best way to end this pandemic and it will save lives and it is safer than not getting it. Like, you know, like I trust that, but I trust experts all day long, right? Like I trust experts. Like I don't understand how my Bluetooth speaker works, but I listen to music on it. And I just trust that the people who built that speaker, like I don't need to understand it in order to use it. Right. Like I, there's so many, like, I, I don't know how to build an engine for my car, but I drive my car. Right. Like everything that we do is so built up in trusting expertise and trusting that somebody else who knew how to do that thing spent their life researching it and getting good at it and was able to execute it. And so I like, I just, this goes back to that conversation I was having about specialization, right? When I was complaining about the board game. Um, but, But like, I, I want people to be able to find the thing that they're good at and do it. And then I want to be able to benefit from other people finding the thing that they're good at and doing it. Like, I think that that is a, We've talked about sapiens in here and you've read it, right? Yes. But where they talk about how different our brains are because and how they're kind of smaller in many ways and hold less knowledge now because we've learned to work in groups and I don't have to know everything about everything. I can be an expert in this and get together with other experts. And so we're able to make progress that would be impossible beforehand. But that person, that singular host early homo sapiens, um, had to know about every single plant and every single rock in their world individually. And so they could hold more knowledge, but we don't have to. And I think that made me sad when I read it, but no, that's a good thing. Yeah, like, but it does require a level of trust and connection that is, I mean, it's vulnerability, right? And hope. And hope. But well, because you can't have hope without vulnerability if you don't. But it is, it's, it's really worrying if that trust is broken and that trust is broken by people who just, I don't understand people who don't trust in science and experts right now. But on the other hand, like you said, some of that trust is being broken by the very systems that make it when they lower the bar for the degrees and when they don't check all the boxes. How many, I mean, you and I have talked personally, how many negative medical experiences have you had in your life? And how much, how much are people able to differentiate like the doctor who rushed you through an appointment and tried to put you on some drugs that you didn't need because they had a pharmaceutical rep breathing down their back of their neck how many people are able to separate that from like a panel of epidemiologists or for how many people is that the same thing in their head? Right. Like that's all, all, that's all one giant untrustworthy unit. Yeah. Sad face. (laughs) It's, it's important. It's important to think through though, because it's not binary. It's not a dichotomy. It's not, oh, here are idiots and here are us. Right. Um, but, I mean, sometimes, you know, we've yelled that. It seems like we're, the, the, it's moving towards an overall from both ends loss of expertise being 
um, valued, protected, valued and protected. Yeah. Which then, what does that, I mean, does that mean that we then have to go back to knowing everything ourselves? No, that's why it's horrifying. Because you can't. Me. I mean, we can't. Yeah. I There's don't too much it. to know. There's too much to know. But that's the thing. Even if, right, it devolved and we had to be responsible for everything, haven't we as a society made that impossible? I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, I just read about the newest iPhone that they're actually taking to court because third-party repair shops, iPhone has finally figured out because the number one problem with iPhones is cracked screens. And that's a very simple fix that third-party repair shops can fix for you for cheap. And iPhone, um, Apple finally found out with this new iPhone how to make it to where third-party repair shops can't fix the screen. And so it's with facial recognition that they've put in an actual chip in the screen itself that if you don't have the proprietary software and you go to replace the screen, it won't open for you. And so things like that, where you But didn't do... I just read that Apple is going to start selling repair kits so that people can repair things themselves? What is that then? What I literally that? read that today. So I, I mean, I... Probably both. And so what is that? So that what are we doing? doing? But, like, I, th- I think because the thing is, like, you don't know. So are they going to put the third-party systems out of business, and then you'll have to <gasps> buy the kits directly and from everyone's Apple? everyone's going to be too lazy to do it themselves or not understand how to do it. Oh, you're right. It's a way to put third parties out because they're suing them. Oh, no. But my, I mean, my point being that I think more and more and more with larger and larger corporations – our ability, even if we wanted to, to do everything for ourselves is becoming lost knowledge and impossible. I mean, like, I know that I am not the best representative of, of the DIY mindset because I have, I have unabashedly embraced the things that I am good at and have completely said, I'm just going to outsource the things that I'm not because I don't have the time or the energy to do all of these things. So like, I, I have no shame in hiring people to fix things around my house rather than try to fix them myself. Right. Like I, I, I am fine with that, but how, truth, truthfully, how many of us would really just survive at the very basic level on our own, right? About this all the time. Every time I see an apocalyptic show, whether it's a comedy or it's serious. And they're like, okay, well, now we're going to put the power back on and we're going to get power grids. And I'm like, how? How are you? No. How would you? Or just like, I'm going to make this plant grow well enough that we can eat it before <laughs> I starve to death. Yeah. <laughs> or build, build things. I I'm going to start the house. I'm going to start a fire without the help of a lighter that somebody else designed. <laughs> It takes me long enough to start a fire with matches. I mean, I know, and I know that that's like us talking about our very specific experiences in the world. And there are people who are sure, but I I think it's moving towards. What percentage of people truly could take care of all of their basic needs on their own for five years. Right. And I think that there's like this point of pride of like, Oh, I could do it all myself. But like, I don't think that, I don't think that there's any more 
it doesn't make any more sense to me to be prideful about that than it does to be prideful about being an extreme expert. Like, I think that they're both a trade-off, right? Like, and it has to do with what kind of future you think that we're headed towards. And so at some point, I think, oh man, I just think I hit on something that if you, if your anger at expertise is that you feel like it is inaccessible to you, then do you start hoping for a future that doesn't benefit having yeah. that level of expertise? So that's, that's it. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Well, not, you know, that's never one thing, but yeah, I think you really hit on something. And you said that the divide does run largely between college educated and not college educated and the college, the university system in America is so aft and how expensive it is to get into college and go to college and just the trust in that system is eroding that, yeah, it makes, that makes sense to me that if you don't, if that's not a path forward, that, that expertise in one thing that makes you money, right? That was my problem the whole time you were talking. That'd be great. Go do the thing that you are best at and then this flow state for you. But how often do the, like, what are the jobs in which that pays you a living wage? She's talking, yeah, who are the millionaires? Right. Right? Like actors and musicians, but like there's so few and far between the ones that are successful. And there's like just a sea of bodies of people who didn't make it doing that. And, I guess and, you would say they're not expert experts. I don't know. So what? There's no wrapping it up. No. But it's very interesting. What do you think, Michelle, your like flow state million be a millionaire thing is I don't know if it's I don't think it's gonna make me a millionaire but I definitely get into flow states when I'm like designing classes for people to take like I could I have spent like seven hours without stopping doing it and if you had asked me how long I was doing it I'd be like oh like 20 minutes like I like I just absolutely the, the way they describe flow, right? Completely lose track of time, completely focused on it. Can Don't ever feel like any hitches or like blocks and you're just going, going, going and it's all coming together. I definitely, I mean, not every time I try to design something, oh, yeah. but, but it gets you there. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good feeling. Oh. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's the best feeling. So good. I guess maybe my flow state is watching YouTube videos. Well, and then I get to research about. There you go. Not really. Turning it into this book, million dollar idea, baby. Yeah, academic boss, babe. Academic books will never make you money. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh Lord. Should we? My we got recap. So our weird thing was the moon museum. From our anonymous grab bag. It was fantastic. The so moon cool. museum. Um, and my weird thing was the stream of alcohol <laughs> running through the woods. Alcohol river and the big rock candy. Nope. Gonna cut that. Thought it was going somewhere. Um, my pop culture thing was the emergence 
of the Manic Pixie Dream Boy, largely through Pete Davidson. My, well, I, I did not have one. We had another grab bag on 60 Seconds, the game where you have a choose-your-own-adventure style survival through like a 1950s nuclear apocalypse. Thank you, Ayla. And then research, my research was on YouTube star Mr. Beast and, you know, the emergence of the new global south and his making of Squid Game and how that is truly proving Baudrillard's revenge. It's all simulacrum. My my research <laughs> thing was about genius and expertise and how our definitions of them diverge and converge. Yeah. So my initial thought is that we open our fortune cookie and it's a drawing of a penis. I am not saying no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it fits with our weird thing. Oh, but it doesn't fit with 60 seconds. (laughs) Well. Okay. So what if it's a drawing of a penis and a word? Expertise. (laughs) I am thinking a lot about like the hedgehog and the fox as like archetypes with us talking about your (laughs) So it's a penis and a hedgehog. (laughs) Right. It's a it's a hedgehog covered in penises (laughs) instead of little oh wait, that's a it. Yeah, hedgehogs have have yeah, they have little spikes. I don't know what I was confusing a hedgehog with. Um, but when you were talking about hedgehogs and foxes and then the beer river about, are you the kind of person who follows the rules or are you going to like get around them? That makes me think of those things. Whereas, you know, like a fox, I don't know that, I don't know that fox or hedgehog one is more likely to follow the rules than the other, but I think the fox is definitely more likely to consider all of the angles, right? Whereas the hedgehog's just going to do whatever is aligned with their primary goal, regardless of whether it fits the rules or not. The fox is more likely to consider those outcomes. And I definitely think that that fits with like 60 seconds, the game, because you have to make all these decisions and it's, you know, these nuanced questions of, oh, should you answer the door? It could be somebody who's going to give you, you know, the food you need, or it could be somebody who's going to kill you and take all your stuff. And so like these different just like what prism are you looking through the world? Are you looking through the world through one giant, this is it, or lots of tiny little pinpoints? Fox or hedgehog or penis. <laughs> I'm not looking through the world at all. I'm just drawing penises. <laughs> well, I mean, but I think that is a way of being in the world. Yeah. The Rauschenberg Warhol uh, way of being in the world. And kind of the manic pixie dream boy right like they have big bde big dick yeah like i don't care how you're looking at the world i'm just i'm just here for a good time not a long time man but yeah that that urge to i mean because that's not inherently 
groundhoggy or foxy, but it's a different urge maybe. So we're just going to open our fortune cookie and it is a badly drawn penis, hedgehog, and fox. No, they're beautifully drawn because an expert did it. (laughs) (laughs) An anatomically correct penis and a very realistic hedgehog and fox on your fortune cookie. It is, I'm long overdue for redoing our theme song, and I really want to get the sound clip of you saying an anatomically correct penis. <laughs> every ep- every episode with that. Be, like that's my legacy. That's what I'm leaving in this world. <laughs> I mean that, right? It's something people leave in the world. You draw it on things with Christmas lights. Are we gonna do I are we gonna do it? I'm I'm here. I'm here for it. I feel like I subjected everybody to enough of my talking that I don't know that, that okay. they need any more. I love it. We okay. open our fortune cookie and there is a beautifully expertly, I would say, twenty thousand hours this person's been drawing plus penis. Fox, hedgehog. And then it gets shot into space. <laughs> Go about your Fortnite. We got a theory. You see, Mike, we got a theory about magic and miracles. That's right. That's right. If magic is all we've ever known, then it's easy to miss what really goes on. But I've seen miracles in every way, and I see miracles every day. Ocean spanning beyond my sight, and a million stars way above them at night. You don't have to be high to look in the sky and know that's a miracle open wide. Look at the mountains, trees, the seven seas, and everything chilling underwater. Please, hot lava, snow, rain, and fog. Long neck giraffes and pet cats and dogs. And I've seen 85,000 people all in one room together as equal. Pure magic is the birth of my kids. I've seen shit that'll shock your eyelids. The sun and the moon and even Mars. The Milky Way of fucking shooting stars. UFOs, a river flows. Plant a little seed and nature grows. Niagara Falls and the pyramids. Everything you believed in as kids. Fucking rainbows. After it rains, there's enough miracles here to blow your brains. I fed a fish to a pelican at Frisco Bay. It tried to eat my cell phone. He ran away. And music is magic, pure and clean. You can feel it and hear it, but it can't be seen. It can't be seen. Music is all magic. You can't even hold it. Do you notice and recognize miracles? It's just there in the air. Pure motherfucking magic, right? This shit'll blow your motherfucking mind. (laughs) Music is a lot like love. It's all a feeling, and it fills the room from the floor to the ceiling. I see miracles all around me. Stop and look around, it's all astounding. Water, fire, air, and dirt. Fucking magnets, how do they work? And I don't wanna talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed. Solar eclipse and vicious weather. 15,000 juggalos together. And I love my mom for giving me this time on this planet. Take nothing for granted. I seen a caterpillar turn into a butterfly. Miracles ain't nothing to lie. Shaggy's little boys look just like Shaggy. And my little boy looks just like daddy. Miracles each and everywhere you look. And no 
nobody has to stay where they put this world is yours for you to explore it's nothing but miracles beyond your doors the dark carnival is your invitation to witness that without explanation take a look at this fine creation and enjoy it better with appreciation crows ghosts the midnight coast the wonders of the world mysteries the most just open your mind and it ain't no way to ignore the miracles of every day and that's real and that's real magic everywhere in this bitch do you notice and recognize miracles it's all around you you don't even know it are you a believer in miracles?